0: How many of you remember the, uh, the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Did anybody watch that like 15 years ago? Yeah, good. Uh, I, whenever I hear that song to this day, whenever I hear the rose or I think about like I, I can still kind of do this. Do you remember that move? Or whenever I hear um, Forever Young, which I think they played at that dance, and then Time After Time, which I think they played by the... Played tetherball at the end of that. Whenever I think of those, I still like forever associate those songs with that goofy movie. My least favorite character in that movie was Uncle Rico. You remember Uncle Rico? Like, I mean, everybody had like their favorite character and their least favorite. I could not stand Uncle Rico. Uh, I just thought he was uh, just a terrible person. Uh, Like, I just think about him selling that Tupperware or whatever it was he was selling and just being such a slime ball in a dirt bag. Uh, I remember him saying, what does he say, like back in 82, I uh, used to be able to toss a pigskin a quarter mile. And uh, in real life, Uncle Rico, by the way, is a vegetarian. And so there's a scene where they're sitting on the porch eating a steak and, uh, and he doesn't swallow it. Like he's got this massive amount of steak in his mouth. But I love that moment where he picks the steak up and he throws it and he hits Napoleon Dynamite uh, on the, uh, while he's riding on the bicycle. I'm like, how many takes did it take for them to get that right? It's incredible. Uh, but I think about that. He said, he said coach, would." put me in the fourth quarter, uh, we'd have won state, uh, no doubt, no doubt in my mind. Like, I can still see that guy. I just couldn't stand that guy. Uh, and I think it wasn't so much like that guy's present circumstance in the movie that bugged me. It was how he lived in the past. And he was just so, everything in his life was being dictated by the disappointment of the past. And I think there's so many people that that's their story. There's so many of us who uh, we begin to wonder with our life, well, what if? And that idea of, like, what if begins to paralyze us uh, toward what God would have us become. We just become chained to the what ifs of the past. And we end up saying something like, well, if only I had done this, or if only this hadn't been done to me, or if only uh, this would have been different in my life. We become like Uncle Rico, and we just, if only, if only, if only. And so I I thought about some of mine in my life, like, I remember when I was in the ninth grade, I got bronchitis the week of baseball tryouts, and I loved baseball, and I missed the first three days of tryouts, and that was the end of my baseball career. You can't go, you can't miss 60% of the tryouts um, and, and still make the baseball team, and so God had other plans for my life. I look back now. I'm like, well, God knew exactly what he was doing. One door closing became the opening of another door in my life that was really good. Uh, I, th- I think about over the course of our marriage, Natalie and I have sweet celebrated 15 years of marriage. And there's times where I say, well, especially our first few years, I'm like, well, what if we saved more? Like we look at. The, where we were in Georgia and what we were making and then what we weren't saving. Like, what were we burning our money in the fireplace to keep warm? Like, what were we doing with our money at that point? So I wonder, like, what if we'd save more? If only, you know, I've got a ton of them, and I'll, I'll share one at the end even today. What are your if-onlys? If only I did this, uh, and do you have any? Like, I try not to live with regrets, and so I don't let those things sort of camp out in my heart, but there are times where those creep in. We don't, we don't live in the past, but at the same time, we can rent space in the past and kind of go and just, you know, do a, do a little bit of time there, a little timeshare in the past. And, um, and, and, and it becomes really destructive, you know, if we let it, if we begin to live there. And I'm really thankful that the Bible speaks to if-only situations. There's a story we're going to look at today, the raising of Lazarus, and we're going to see when we meet an if-only in our life, we're going to see what the gospel says and what we can begin to replace our if-onlys with because the Bible confronts our if-onlys with a more powerful truth. So let's uh, let's look at John 11. If you're using a paper Bible, it would be best today if you can sort of bookmark it with something in your bulletin because we're going to, it's a long passage. We're not going to read it all. And we're going to read it in chunks. We're going to read it in three chunks and get a lot of it. So here we go. John 11. John 11 is actually about the, the middle chapter in the book of John, which I think is really significant. If we were looking at John as far as words, this is in the middle. This is the pivot story. We entitled today, I entitled today's message. Um, the beginning of the end, because by the end of this story, you can see that for the first time, uh, the religious leaders are thinking about killing Jesus and saying, this guy has got to die. And so this is right in the middle. Uh, Everything is going to begin to quickly head toward the cross after John 11. If you continue to read John, you'll see that. And here's what it says in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany's a suburb of Jerusalem, a couple of miles out of the city the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So these are a brother and two sisters, and and Lazarus gets really sick. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, now this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through him. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's really important. Uh, If you hear nothing today, hear that God loves you. There have been so many days in my life as a Christian where I've operated out of a sense that I was working to try to earn something from God. If you hear nothing today, hear that the God of the universe loves you so much. Uh, Just like Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, God loves you and I. Verse six, so when he heard... And this is interesting. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't seem that seems like a contradiction, right? Like if he loved him, why, if he loved him and he was really sick, why didn't he go see him? If somebody said, "Hey, so and so is at the hospital," like it's a, somebody I love, I'm running straight to the hospital. Jesus seems in love to do the exact opposite of that. And then after this, he said to the disciples. Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there. He says, let's go see. Let's go down to Judea. That's where Bethany is. He's like, let's go see Lazarus. Uh, We've waited a couple of days, but let's go. And, And the disciples know for Jesus and love to go see Lazarus is also endangering him and the 12 disciples. Because they're starting, the heat's starting to rise on Jesus. And he's a little too popular Uh, for the religious crowd, like he's threatening their piece of the the pie of cultural influence. And so they're wondering, um, the disciples, are we going to get in trouble? Are we going to get arrested? In fact, one of the disciples even says, Jesus later says, just so you know, like Lazarus is dead. He he died. And we're going to go see him. And one of the disciples says, well, let's go die with him. And, And Jesus just kind of, there's sometimes for Jesus, I wish we could see like a real-life Bible of, like, what it looked like. So I think Jesus is probably like, what are you talking about? Like, come on, guys, let's head down the road. Like, but Lazarus has died, and um, the disciples don't get it, and that's where we find ourselves. And so there's three things in this I want us to see before we talk about Lazarus' death. Here's the first one, uh, and these will be three quick bullets you might put. So here's the first one. One, Jesus is aware, not that one. There it is. Jesus is aware of what's going on. Now the biblical word for like God's awareness of our situation is omniscient. That means that God is all knowing. And uh, so that means that God knows himself perfectly. Theologically, God knows himself perfectly. And God exists as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in Trinity. And uh, we were talking with somebody about this the other day and they said, it just explain the Trinity to me. I was like, People have been arguing about that for like 2,000 years. I don't think we're going to explain the Trinity over a cup of uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Like, it's a little more complicated than that. But God is three in one and one in three. He's not three gods. There's not one sort of one God. Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father are distinct and yet the same. And God is totally aware and knowing of himself. He's also knowing of all things. God knows all things that were, are, and will be. And theologically, God knows all the other scenarios that could occur uh, in the universe. God understands how the universe works. Time is in his hands, and he gets how things work. And he sees it. God doesn't see time and history as a a million decisions, uh, one after the other, a billion decisions, and all these things. God sees history and time and our lives as one act. It's one great play living out before him for his pleasure and glory, and so he sees that. In other words, God sees the big picture of history and creation and our lives, and God is in complete control of it. There's never a moment that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, have to look at our life and feel like, oh man, the, the thing has gone off the rails and we're about to go off the cliff. God is in control of our lives no matter what it. Feels like, so Jesus sees you and I. God knows your situation, just like Jesus knew Lazarus' situation. God knows your situation, and he is in control, and you are not alone. You're not alone when you feel like the wheels are coming off. Second thing we see here, Matthew, if you'll go to the second slide, is that Jesus is sovereign over this situation. The biblical word for that is that God is omnipotent that he's all-powerful, that God is totally able to do his holy will. The devil is not so strong that he is able to trump Jesus' will and God's plan for how the universe is going to work out. God is able to do all of his holy will. Everything is under the reign, rule, and kingdom authority of Jesus. You Remember the movie The Lion King? We're just going with all the old movie references this morning. Remember the part where Mufasa and Simba are sitting uh, on some type of cliff and Mufasa is saying a sun everywhere the light touches is our kingdom. And Simba says, well, what about that over in the shadows? And, and Mufasa says, well, that's not our kingdom. Listen, there's no shadow land of creation where God is not sovereign. The darkest, scariest places of the universe and of your life and mine, of your past and mine, are under the sovereignty, the sovereign kingdom control of God. And so God doesn't cause evil to happen, but God does allow evil things to happen. He does, and and he redeems, and this is the good news. The good news is not that God is like some mean bully with a magnifying glass who's trying to zap us all in the heat of the sun. God allows bad to happen, but he's redeeming bad and broken things. He's redeeming the broken places of our life. And one day, the Bible tells us, God is going to end it and make all the sad things untrue and fix everything for his glory and for his good. Even the worst things that come, in, that come to you and I must first pass through his sovereign, loving control. Jesus isn't caught off guard by Lazarus being sick unto death. It's under his sovereignty. And the third thing we see here, as I mentioned a second ago, is that Jesus is loving. Jesus is loving. Now, love doesn't always act like we think it should. I remember when I was turning 16, I knew my mom was going to get me a car because she needed a taxi service for my brother who played baseball six days a week. And so I knew I was getting a car. The question was, which car was they going to get? And we went to this, uh, we went to the Toyota lot right up the street from our house. And there was, a, this is like 1994. And there was this convertible, little white convertible car. And man, that car caught my eye from the moment we walked on the lot. And then you get that salesman who's going to try to convince my working three job single mom that that was the car that her 16 year old needed, you know? And he's pitching my mom, he's pitching it hard. And I'm like, I think I'm going to get this car like because this guy clearly cares about me and my mom cares about me and so in love for me I'm walking out of here with a convertible today it did not go down like that I got a 1984 Buick Skylark uh, maroon Uh, (laughs) they even threw in a full tank of gas Um, but here's what I learned that day I learned that my mom had a different perspective than I did, but she only acted in love. See, love doesn't, my kid, we don't understand this when we're kids, and we don't understand it theologically as adults sometimes, but God in love doesn't always act like we think he would. Sometimes, like God answers, 100% of the time, God answers every prayer you and I will ever pray. He answers them four ways. One, some things he says yes to. Two, some things he says no to. Three, sometimes he says not yet. And four, I never thought about this one until the other day. Sometimes God says yes, but it feels like no. Those are the hardest ones to deal with. God says yes, but it feels like a no. So how do we know that God loves us? 1 John 4.10. Let me flip over to it. I don't have it marked, so give me just a moment. 1 John 4.10 says this. In, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. But God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a nice theological word. It just means the full payment. God loved us so much. They sent his son to pay the full payment for our sin. So if you ever are like me and life's not going your way and you say, God, do you love me? Have you forgotten me? Do you still love me? Are you punishing me right now? Look to the cross where the son of God died naked and bled out in total humiliation, alone to pay the full payment for our sin. God loves us. Look at the cross. He didn't spare his own son. So now, uh, if you still got your Bible, let's look at. Let's skip down to uh, verse fourteen, and then we're going to jump to seventeen. Verse fourteen says this: Now Jesus told them plainly, "Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you can believe." But let's go to him. And verse seventeen: Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. I bet that smelled delicious, like. And, if, and you say, like, can't you just see the family? Like, Jesus, you, you said you loved us. My brother, you love, we've hosted you in our house. We've financed your ministry. And you let him die, and you're powerful. You're out feeding 5,000 people. You're out raising strangers from the dead. You're out giving eyesight to people who've never seen and helping people walk who've never walked. And, and my brother just had the flu, and you couldn't come deal with it? I thought you loved us. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, Mary said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection, on the last day. Now, Jews, um, there's a couple ways that we can view what happens after this. Uh, one way is a very Greek way of thinking. It's that our bodies and souls are two different things, and you know our souls rise again. So a lot of people, when they think about heaven, they just think about us as these like, little cloud balls of energy with wings and playing harps like and our bodies are bad and so we resent our body and it's not good. This is not the judeo-christian thinking. The judeo-christian thinking is that at the end of time we'll have resurrected bodies and souls that we're not like multiple parts mind, soul and body. It's all one. God has made all of us and declared that it's good because he made it. And so they're not there's no like dichotomy here it's God will raise all of us at the end and we'll have resurrected bodies so there will be a day in heaven where I don't have to wear these dumb things and there will be a day in heaven where the things that annoy me about myself are made right now that doesn't mean that I won't still have like a cowlick or my hair sticks up in the back like that's part of me that's God look at that and says well that's good so God doesn't isn't going to make us all supermen and superwomen where we have no problems But God is going to take all the sad things and make them untrue at the end in the resurrection. And Martha, as a good Jew, believed there would be this resurrection. But look what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, it says, Jesus said to her, Martha, I'm the resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And so Martha here is going to have her, Matthew, if you go to the next slide, Martha here is having her Uncle Rico moment. Jesus, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I thought you loved him. I thought you cared. If only you had been here. If only, Jesus, if only. Her past in this moment is interpreting her present That's what's happening to Martha. If only the past is interpreting her present. The past is getting the last word in her life. This will always victimize you. If the past determines your present and your future, you're always the victim of what happened to you before. And so uh, Rick Warren, who's a pastor in California, has said, We're all products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of our past. Man, I love that. You're a product of your past. It doesn't have to imprison you. And so we tend to say, like Martha said, Jesus, if only you had been here. And, and here are some other if-onlys I think we say. If only I hadn't been through that tragedy. If only my loved one didn't have that cancer. If only I wasn't abused as a kid. If only I hadn't gotten that abortion. If only I weren't same-sex attracted. If only I didn't wrestle with addiction. If only that loved one hadn't died. If only I hadn't gone through that divorce. If only I hadn't been molested as a kid. I hear people say, if only I had Christian parents. If only I had a loving Christian spouse. If only I had more Bible knowledge. If only I'd become a follower of Jesus years ago. If only I had better skills at sharing uh, the gospel. Or if I hadn't sinned. If only I hadn't sinned and done this. I've gone off the rails. It wasn't God's fault, but it's my fault. If only I hadn't done that. And whatever, maybe that's your deal. And it's like whatever the thing is that causes you the most regret. Or we say, if only I had more, whatever, faith, money, security, Whatever it may be, if only I had more, or if only I didn't struggle with this thing. I struggle so much with self-doubt, sometimes it feels like I can barely breathe. Just, God, how can you do anything with me and through me? I can't do this, God. I can't do this. If only I didn't struggle with this. God, I would feel like the training wheels were off, and I'd be so free to ride in faith. And so look at what happens in um, verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He says, Listen, thanks for your if onlys, Martha, but I'm the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus met Martha's if only with an I am and an I will. Jesus, when she's living in the past, if you'll go to the next one, Matthew. When, when Martha's being victimized by the past, Jesus says, forget the past. Look at who I am and look at what I'm telling you I'm going to do in and through you. He says, I'm the resurrection of a life. If only is the past interpreting the present and the future. Jesus, the gospel, uh, gives us permission to say, if Jesus. And we, when we say, if Jesus, what's happening is we're going to the future Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection, death can't hold me, I'm stronger, I'm better, I can do this. Jesus is going into the future saying, I'm going to wrap this up, I'm going to fix things, I'm going to take all the sad things and make them untrue one day. Jesus going to the future and then coming back to the present. And saying, if that's what I'm going to do in your life, you're okay. It's okay. So we can replace our if-onlys with if Jesus, we can interpret the present and the future. Uh, what one theologian said is that we as Christians have the glorious privilege of the future bursting into the present in our life. Because God is faithful. Jesus gets the last word, which is Christians, Roman 8 says, makes us more than conquerors. And if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And so we come and, and we see this, if only, Martha saying, if only you'd been here, Jesus. Jesus says, if only I am the resurrection and the life. Death loses, he says. Lazarus can live. Uh, we say, he comes to our, if only I hadn't been through that tragedy. And Jesus says, if only I will work through that tragedy. I will work through that tragedy. I will work through cancer, abuse, being molested, the death of a loved one, same-sex attraction, a struggle. I will work through all of that. Nothing uh, makes you a victim because I reinterpret the future and bring the future to the present and your life. So for us as Christians, the past is never, and tragedy is never unredemptive or outside God's knowledge or power or control or sovereignty or his love. He never leaves us victims, but Jesus always makes us more than conquerors, the Bible says. If only I had Christian parents or a loving spouse or more knowledge or more this or that. God, if, if Jesus is God, then I have been given all that I need and, there, and where I feel like I lack, he will make up for in the power of the gospel or he will step into that place where it feels like we're not enough and his grace will come in there and, and his grace will be on display and not our strength. If only I haven't sinned. But Jesus says I'm forgiven. And I can empathize with people and point to Jesus. If only I had more blank. The Bible says God supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If only I didn't struggle with blank. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus meets our if-onlys, and the gospel compels us to replace them with if-Jesus, but Jesus, stepping into our life. So what happens when our if-only meets Jesus? Let me read you verse, start in verse 38, and we'll finish out this story. And this is so good. Um, they move forward, Jesus interacts with Martha's sister Mary, and there's all these professional mourners who are going out to the tomb, and Jesus says, show me where you put them, and Jesus moved by the scene, he begins to cry, and the crowd can't figure out why Jesus is weeping, and, uh, but they come to the tomb, and in verse 38 it says, "Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone, and Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord... By this time, there'll be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I can just hear my mom be like, boy, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you get in that bed? Did I not tell you eat your vegetables? Like Jesus says, in, in lo- not frustration and love. Jesus says, Martha, didn't I tell you? If you believe, like, we're here at the tomb, don't panic. Didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you've sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, a lot of theologians, I've heard people preach about this Phrase uh, multiple times. And a lot of times they say, I've heard pastors say, you know why he called Lazarus? Because when God meets death, everything dead comes to life. And he calls Lazarus to come out because if he didn't call Lazarus, all the dead people would have come back to life and every one of them would have walked out of that tomb. Whatever's dead and broken in your life, when the power of Jesus meets it, it comes to life. That's what Jesus being the resurrection of a life means. He takes dead, broken things and brings them back to life. Verse 44. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. He's a mummy. And his face wrapped uh, with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. What happens when if only meets Jesus, Jesus wins. When Jesus meets, he, uh, if only Jesus wins. And so uh, he calls and he says, unbind him, let him go. Even death dies at the command of Jesus and has to come to life. And so Jesus says, what do we do? Like in your dead places in your life, in the dead places in my life, in the if onlys of our life, Jesus would say, unbind it. Let it go. Let it loose. Let the if only places of your life and my life see the light of day. I remember one time Nat and I, this is not in the script, so we could get in trouble. I remember one time Nat and I were uh, counseling this woman, and it was like she could not get past this struggle. Like, we didn't know what the struggle was, but it was like she would come this far in her walk with God, and she would always hit a wall. And one day we were meeting with her, and it was this clear, I, don't, I can't explain to you what it was like, but God just sort of etched something in my soul. And I asked her in that meeting, like, knowing nothing about her story, I said, Tell me about when you were molested as a kid. Now I never will forget, she started crying, and she goes, who told you that? I was like, nobody told me. And she said, well, the truth is I was molested twice as a kid, once by an uncle and once by a stranger. Man, like, it was such a liberating moment for that young woman. Because for the first time in her life, the brokenness and what had always been bound up and smelled like death could breathe and see the light of the gospel. And she could be free just a little bit. It was so sweet. Let, let those if only speak to the power of the gospel. Let them testify. Can't you just see Lazarus coming out? Like, I don't think Lazarus is just sitting there playing cards, hanging out in the house, drinking lemonade. I think from then on, Lazarus is probably saying a couple things. One... Dang, I was in heaven. Martha, like, Mary, why did you pitch a fit? And now I got to come back down here. It's hot down here, and there's no air conditioning. Like, I think he's saying that. But then I think he's also saying, man, Jesus brought me back to life. It's pretty powerful. So from this, you know, I told you, we call this the beginning of the end. Because from this moment on, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, wanted to kill two people. They wanted to kill Jesus, and they wanted to kill Lazarus. Because Lazarus' story pointed to Jesus so much that he became just as much of a threat as Jesus was. And when we unbind our stories and our broken places and let the gospel have authority and we can say, but Jesus, rather than if only, then we become as much of a threat to the kingdom of darkness as the resurrection of Jesus. That's a powerful thought. So I think... um, and what happens in that, by the way, when you do that, what we've learned, Natalie and I, through our struggles is so often we feel like, well, oh, I can't tell Miss Alicia I struggle with this. I can't tell James I struggle with this. They wouldn't understand. But so often when we share those things, we'll hear somebody say back, oh, you went through that? I went through that, too. I thought I was the only one. Praise God. We're not alone. That's a freeing thought. and a free, That's the power of the gospel. So I think there's three objections you could have, uh, maybe more. One, you could say, well, isn't this just spin? Are you just spinning a, way, a new way to interpret life? And I would tell you, no, this is not spin. This is the heart of Christian theology with feet on it. If Jesus is the resurrection, that's got to be more than just the last couple of chapters of the, of the gospel's Fact: This is Christian theology with feet on it. Second objection is, is this just minimizing our past? Is this just ignoring the past. And I would say, no, it's putting the past in its rightful place under Jesus' authority. It's letting the gospel reinterpret what we've been through. And then the third objection, and this is the best one, is somebody would say, yeah, but Lazarus died again. It's not like he's still alive. And I would say, exactly. Yes, Lazarus died again. I don't know where he's buried, but we can go somewhere in Israel today. And we would find, if we had the DNA and the proper science, Not we would find his dead body. And it doesn't stink because it's been so long. And Lazarus is dead. You are exactly right. But Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead. We will not find Jesus' body. Because he died on Good Friday and was in the grave three Jewish days. And on Resurrection Sunday, which we'll separate, celebrate in 14 days, he rose again. And he walked with people in crowds. It wasn't just a couple people who had done some drugs and like had a hallucination. He bodily walked with people for 40 days. After 40 days, the Bible says he ascended to heaven, and he sits reigning at the right hand of God. And one day, he's going to come back and establish his kingdom on earth. And he's going to take everything broken, and he's going to fix it and put it all right again. And so Jesus, Lazarus is dead, but Jesus always gets the last word. Jesus always gets the last word. So I told you I struggle with uh, self-doubt. So this would be my if only. If only I didn't fight self-doubt constantly, constantly. But here's the truth for me. But Jesus is my confidence See, if I didn't have this, then I wouldn't need this. God redeems our if-onlys and reinterprets them in light of the power of the gospel. So we're going to pray here in a moment. I want to invite you to do a couple of things. One, if you, today we're going to receive communion like we do every Sunday. If you're a follower of Jesus and are walking in relationship with God, not perfect, like that's not, you know, you've hopefully you've been here enough to know none of us are perfect and I'm the lead, like not perfect person here for sure. Uh, so, but if you're walking in relationship with God, you're a follower of Jesus. I want to invite you to come and receive communion. Uh, the, the bread represents Jesus' body. The fruit of the vine represents his blood given for you and I. If you'd have been the only person who was ever born, he still would have died for you because you're not perfect and you need a Savior. The the elements of communion also remind us that we're family. And so it unites, it reminds us of our uniting with God and our uniting with one another. And so that's why it's called communion. We're communing with God and communing with each other. The second thing I would like to invite you to do, and this is a little more bold, and usually we don't get this bold. You get to just kind of come and listen and respond as you feel led. Uh, On that table, that table, and that table, are uh, some of these papers and and some Sharpie markers. And I would like to invite you, Jeremiah's going to come and play and we're going to just let him play for a moment. As you, We're going to let this next couple of minutes go a little longer today. If you have an if-only in your life, I want to invite you to go and write out your if-only on a piece of paper and then write out a but Jesus on your piece of paper. And we're not going to do like share show and tell time today, uh, per se. But if you do that, and you would be so bold. Carson has brought his camera. And uh, when we get done today, I'd love to just take a photo of you holding up this one and then you holding up this one. Oh, this one. I'd love to just get a photo of it. You're if only and you're but Jesus, if you would be willing. It's a powerful testimony. I think that, um, Yeah. It's powerful. Imagine Lazarus and Martha and Mary's story going forward. If only he had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. But he did die. And the future reinterpreted the present. So we can say, but Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life and God's display, God's power on display in their life.